Welcome to Cooking Books, the weekly podcast series about books in which food is the story. I'm Jilly Smith, and each week I find the four food moments that provide the narrative arc in the books of my guests, digging just a little deeper into the dishes that drive the plot. Or in this case, plot the path for the author of Life Kitchen, Ryan Riley. Ryan was just 20 years old when his mother died of cancer, but her loss of taste during chemotherapy would provide him with an idea that would change his life. I first met him two years ago at the very first of his Life Kitchen cookery classes for people living with cancer. And I asked him about his meteoric journey since that day at River Cottage. You know, it's, it's hard to explain or even realise what we've actually been through. Because, you know, that, that day that we met was still six months after Life Kitchen launched. And, and originally it was an idea on Twitter. Um, my mother passed away from cancer and I wanted to do one cookery class. And that one cookery class somehow turned into a Radio 4 Today programme appearance that then culminated in Hugh Fenner Whittensall offering me River Cottage to launch our cookery classes for people living with cancer. And it just became this this juggernaut and took on its own life. I mean, like you say, we met, we met then. And even sitting here today, I'm shocked looking at my book on this table, sitting with you talking about it now. It's amazing. And I think that the reason that it resonated so much is because it is about cancer, but it's about pleasure in cancer. Those two words don't necessarily sit together. But it was something that was inspired by the loss of your mother. But losing your mother was unbearable enough before she lost her sense of taste and you as a foodie just couldn't bear that. So what did you do? Well, you know, at the time, nothing. There wasn't anything I could do. My mother's pleasure in eating was disappearing by the day. I always talk about this time. There was a really famous photo in my family of um, us all at a birthday celebration, mother with no hair and a glass of champagne in her hand, and yet still couldn't even taste the champagne. And that's a strong flavour. Yeah. And I just always think back to that moment and think back to how depressing it is that she didn't want to go to her own sister's birthday because she knew eating out in a restaurant was going to be miserable for her. Mm. And if that was the only time in pleasure that we knew, time in pleasure that we are going to have together in the last few months of her life, and she couldn't even find the joy to go or enjoy it, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. And those sorts of inspirations have sort of, um, sort of sat with me for all of this time. And I'm really proud to eventually have the book out because this is a moment for me. But, um, you know, that, like you said, it's about enjoyment. It's not about... Nutrition, it's not about medicine. Yeah. Although a lot of the, the, the meals in here are, are very healthy, yeah. but they're healthy not in any way other than they're just delicious. Well, it's because all the flavour hits just happen to be herbs and citrus and all that sort of stuff. But let's be clear about it. It wasn't the cancer itself. It was the chemo that's, yeah. that deprived your mother of the ability to take pleasure in food. Yeah, it was a mix of the chemo and the radiotherapy. And I think not only just the fact that when she was having treatment, the weeks in between, the lasting side effects, um, and then it became a mental battle as well. You know, when you start to feel sick from eating or nothing tastes the same, you mentally don't get that pleasure, then you distance yourself from it. So it was about trying to break down those barriers with even my mother back then. And, you know, I I talk about this a lot as the inspiration, but the the ice pops that my mother always used to eat, um, just piles of them on the sofa. And I just kept thinking, well, that can't be good. You know, why she should be eating, you know, something healthier. But but she couldn't and she wouldn't enjoy it. And and I guess that's kind of why this book is only about enjoyment as well. Because you have to enjoy these things. And the ice pops are your first food moment. They were the last thing that your mother ever tasted. Yeah, and the thing that she probably tasted the most of in the last few months. You know, piles of them on the side of the sofa under a blanket, watching come down and think, well, she'd tell me she didn't want to die. It, it's a very, very emotional moment in my life. And 
And you know, I have an, like an addiction to ice pops these days, and I wonder if there's some psychological connection between <laughs> that. But you know, the, it was the cold, sugary hit that she could taste, and that was pretty much about it. Did you know that at the time? I don't think she told me at the time. I, I knew what I was observing. Um, I knew that she wasn't eating anything else. You know, I was, you know, my dad and my sisters are wonderful, but I was the one that she always confided in. It would be me and her on the sofa under that blanket. And um, I think this is probably quite hard for people to hear, but most people, when they get cancer, maybe eventually accept that they're going to die from the people I've met over the years. Um, my mother never did. My sister and I were chatting recently about how my mother never accepted that. She always was terrified of death. She never wanted to believe that the cancer would be the end of it. And there was a real, real fear for her. And that's why those little moments of happiness and pleasure that we all take for granted in our life are so important. Mm. Must have been a real fear for you then as well. Yeah. Yeah, you know, just the whole thing about my mother being ill and the whole process of what has led to Life Kitchen now has, has fundamentally changed who I am as a person and my life. Yeah. You were 18? I was 18 when she was diagnosed, yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a funny story because... I think this is the most poignant moment of my life. I was 18 and I was in the countryside with my friends and I had the actual thought in my head that this is a really good day, possibly one of the best days of my life. I was by a lake, barbecue with the friends in sunshine and then when I came out of the, um, of the countryside and got phone signal again, I found out my mother had cancer. So it was the worst and best day of my life and I just find that absolutely... Like, it's weird that I had that thought that registered this is a really brilliant day and then it turned out to be one of the worst as well. And I just think, though, you know, that's a really poignant moment in my life I think back to every day. You're now a food stylist. And, well, I mean, Life Kitchen has kind of taken over. But you were a food stylist for, for a short while. What got you into food? Because when you were living at home, you weren't particularly interested in food. In fact, the journey for you went into fashion magazines first. And we'll talk about that in a second. It's a story that um, I tell with a very... You know, it's always got this slant, and you'll hear this a lot in my life. I was drunk, and I was thinking about, um, with my friend, we were in the kitchen on a Sunday afternoon, and we were trying to make some gyoza from, I think, the Dumpling Sisters recipe online. And we were not cooks, and we just thought, maybe we could do this as a living. Because when you're drunk, it seems like a good idea. Uh, so we emailed Camden Market, and we said, look, we want to open um, a gyoza stall. And we sent them a set, me- like, a, like a menu, like a sample menu. I'd Why never not? even seen one before. Um, but we just did it, and... We forgot about it, and two days later, the email saying, we don't have anything, come open. No way. I had to call my dad, and I was like, look, I've got this opportunity, and I've always been entrepreneurial, and he's always funded it, and it's all, I probably owe him about a million pounds. Um, and he, I just said to him, look, I've got this opportunity to open a Camden Market, and he'd heard of it, and he was like, he was like, it's iconic, you should go do it, but I was like, I need 5,000 pounds to buy the equipment, and he was like, well, I don't have that, so you can use my credit card for the very <laughs> basic things, I'll come down, and he took us, and a week later, we opened a Camden Market, and we sold, I think we were ahead of our time, everyone says it was horrible, um, we, we sold um, fusion gyoza, like fish and chips inside of a gyoza, a Sunday roast gyoza, um, that lasted one day, um, and then my dad picked me and Kimberly up, who's my best friend and sort of the co-writer of the book as well. She And we were like, crying and they're like, this is it, we spent all this money and it's over. And Dad said, right, well, why don't you go back to the classics, what these foods are meant to be? So that night we redesigned everything. We had vinyl banners made up and the next day we opened as a sort of more traditional um, gyoza, katsu curry sort of food stall and that went on for two years. Fantastic. 
fantastic. Good for you. I mean, I, I, I'm not surprised because everything that you kind of do, you put your heart and soul into it, don't you? So you're there selling gyozas in Camden, you know, boy from Newcastle. I mean, hilarious, chutzpah. So let me take you back. There's a moment before you got to London mm. that you do write about in the book, which just for me is a magical moment. It shows that you are utterly blessed. Tell me the story. So three weeks after my mother died, um, I was obviously very depressed, so sad. And my friend Kelsey, she was like, let, let me take you out. And I was like, I don't have any money. And Newcastle is an amazing night out and it's very cheap. But she was like, let's, let's go do it. And I was like, I think I've got about £20. And she went, right, well, let's go to the casino. And if we turn £20 into £50, that's a full night out. You need it. She was like, I know you don't want to ask your dad because everyone's really sad. Just come with me and we'll go do it. And we got to the casino and we sat down to play blackjack. And I mean, I played it a few times. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't an expert in any way. And then um, they had this, this jackpot on and it was put a one pound side bet to enter into this jackpot. And you had to get four aces of the same colour and the same suit with six decks of cards and six players to, to win this jackpot. And I, put, I played it. I was like, why not? And I got an ace for the first card, and I looked at the board, and it was £50. And I was like, look, we've got the money, let's go out. And then the the next card comes out, and it was another ace. And it was the same colour and the same suit. But I hadn't really paid attention to the jackpot. I was like, well, there's our money, we can go out now. And so then the dealer said to me, would you like to split the cards? And that's how you can get the chance to win that. And I was like, go on. Because I'd, I'd won 100, and that was our night out. And I just couldn't believe it when she pulled two more aces of the same colour and the same suit. And immediately at that moment, everyone on the table just looked at me. And I was going, what does this mean? Because I, I don't think I could comprehend it. I was not exactly in the best mental place anyway. And I won it. I'm a £28,000 jackpot. £28,000 from £20. Yeah, and they closed the table, took the cards away, oh said, gave me a letter of intent because they had to check the cameras. And I... That, but then they get you also give you 10% on the night, so it was a very good night out. How old were you? I was 20. Oh my goodness! So you moved to London with that money, yeah. I went back home to my friend Kimberly. We were living in a council flat, massively behind on our rent. Her mother died, and my mother died. We were both miserable. And I, I just said to her, Look, let's, let's go to London. And I said to my dad, Look, you know, I'm going to get this money, can I loan a little bit more in advance? <laughs> Um, and we flew to Barcelona. We had a five-star holiday because I was 20 and that's what I thought was cool. And then I landed back in London and we paid our rent upfront for a year in Waltham store with the rest of the money, which, you know, doesn't go far yeah. in London. But that was it. Yeah. That set us up. And six years later, here I am. Extraordinary. Blessed. Everything you're doing is just hitting the jackpot. The biggest jackpot was really meeting Dr. Barry Smith, wasn't it? Yeah, because it was just, a, it was a moment when I thought, this isn't just me. I've, there's someone else who can help me push this idea forward. I mean, none of us thought it was going to be this. None of us thought we'd have a cookery school and a book within two years, you know, <laughs> over a thousand guests, and yet still be able to, to do this. I mean, I feel extraordinarily privileged, but Professor Barry Smith gave me an amazing sort of moment where he said you've got you've got some good ideas here but you need to know why they work so before when I met him to when we when I first met you at the River Cottage class was six months of back and forth and looking at the science and sort of developing their ideas so he is a professor of he he founded the center for the study of the senses which is a really hard thing to say um, at the University of London and he is the sort of person that TV execs go to when they want to get people on a show yeah he's go to on taste yeah because he's good at understanding it and telling people it in a normal way good communication science is difficult I 
when I look at what he's trying to tell me, if he wasn't telling me, I'd find it really complex, which is why in the beginning of the book, I'm really glad he's given an introduction. He has, and he explains it very, very well. But there's something missing in this journey again. So, you know, you're, you're not particularly into food. You're making it up as you go along. You're somehow hitting the jackpot again with the gyozas. Are you seeing that a lot of people are taking great pleasure in food? What is it that made you think, I'm going to do food. I'm going to explore more about taste. How did you get to Barry Smith? Well, if if Camden was a drunken idea that led us to a food career, when we left Camden and I started looking at food magazines, I found it exciting. I found the way that people interacted with the idea of eating really, really amazing. And then again, in quite a grandiose way, I was eating a lot of restaurants at the time. And I because found you, because you I, went to work as an intern, you went to do an internship at a fashion magazine when you arrived in London. Yeah. So that whole world at that time was very much food and fashion were very sort of symbiotic at that mm. time, weren't they? Still are. Yeah, they still are. And you know, when, when I went to, when I, when I went to the Sainsbury's and all those other magazines that I worked for, it was, it was all about um, how we get the flavorful food, but I felt like I wasn't eating flavorful food. I was going to restaurants and I was constantly disappointed by what I was eating. And I kept thinking, well, if I can cook this better at home, then why isn't everyone eating like this? And that sort of led to a conversation internally about taste. Yeah. And that's what flagged up my mother's um, experiences. The fact that I was eating all of this bland food and I kept thinking about, well, how, like how, if I'd been able to make better food at the time, my mother would have enjoyed it. And just that little bump set off a process which has led to this what that's an extraordinary eureka moment Mm. do you remember it as a moment i remember it as a collection of moments i remember that this thought would come into my head quite a lot of times and i thought about life kitchen a year before i launched it and going back to the the typical ryan ryler way of launching ideas i was drunk and and i was on my own i was waiting for my, my boyfriend at the time to get home and he called me to say he was buying this this homeless man dinner. And I thought, what a lovely thing to do. And because I'd had one drink at the time, that's all I needed, mm-hmm. I, I said, well, maybe I want to do this nice thing. Maybe I can put my nice thing out in the world. And I tweeted it. And it just went insane yeah. overnight. By the time I woke up the next morning, I had hundreds of retweets, a load of offers of help. Do you remember help. what the tweet was? You know what? I, I've been trying to find it. <laughs> and it said something like, I want to do one cookery class for people living with cancer. Can anyone help me? Um, I want to focus on taste and flavour, which are the words I still use today. They're on the front of the book. Mm. And at the time, I thought, um, you know, I've always thought they were different things. And I think they are. A lot of people argue that they are the same thing, but they're not. And I remember it said, I just want to do one cookery class, focus on taste and flavour for people living with cancer. I want it to be free. Can anyone help with the venue and the food? And lots of people came forward with that, but and they're actually wonderfully generous offers. But it was too early then. If I'd done it when the next week after I launched that tweet, God knows where we would be. I'm glad I took the time to to meet Barry Smith, who I heard on a podcast actually. And I called him up and I just said, look, this is what I want to do. And he was on board since then. And is when we were throwing the lunch pipe at his university, like he's so such an integral part of yeah. how we've got to where we are so the book doesn't just have an introduction by him as well as you but it all the way through there's lots and lots of facts on mm. how it all works not that you really need to because the fla- the recipes are fantastic and once you've kind of got a sense of you know adding a little bit of citrus and using certain f- f- herbs like mint and there's lots of flavors that you use and you explain them once you're up and running with those you'll just keep making recipes up yourself food isn't complex really if you know a couple of hacks really i I taught myself to cook yeah 
And and it's because of a few things. Like when I learned about sweating down onions. And if you give them that amount of time with a touch of salt that draws out the water, how that flavour intensifies. Yeah. Like just someone telling me that yeah. changed everything yeah. about how you cook. And, and I hope in this book there's little bits that give people... Like, we talk a lot about umami. Everyone jokes I should have called the book umami because it's all I talk about. <laughs> but the umami is our fifth taste. It's that deeper, richer savouriness that you get from miso and parmesan, soy sauce, mushrooms, which are like pretty much the main ingredients in this whole book. But if you use those things, it it, it stimulates all of your other taste buds. It gives a deeper, richer flavour. And that just knowing that, knowing if you just mix some Marmite with some cream cheese and put Mm. it on toast, Mm. you're automatically upping those flavours and giving your palate more of a chance of getting that taste. Yeah. So you suddenly had all this information. You knew you could have actually increased your mother's pleasure in eating in in the last you know months of her life how did that feel to have that information when it was too late i mean it made me feel sad obviously but also a little bit angry at the fact that restaurants and and all of these other places that we were going to eat weren't doing this in their food like why like why why wasn't their food just so delicious that anyone who was having an altered sense of taste could have enjoyed it and i know it's probably an irrational thought to have but I just wanted, I just kind of thought food and pleasure and flavour is such an integral part of our lives. And I just want everyone to be able to to have that. Yeah. And it was something that Sue Perkins talked to me about for the Delicious podcast when I came to see her at Life Kitchen. Because she came too. She was yeah. one of the people who responded to that tweet. She was. She actually said, if you ever need a specky-eyed geek... Um, <laughs> text me and I was like okay but, but it was because her her father had gone through the same thing she had witnessed the same thing yeah, and 20 so 20 years of it yes exactly for a very long time and she loves food and she loves to cook and she couldn't bear it and of course lots of people Nigella you know she's been through it three times in her family and lots of people came out of the woodwork and really helped you because you were speaking their language yeah and what, what I realized and what I think my guests are still realizing is they're not alone so many people say to me, I thought this was just me. This was just a side effect I was having. And I think when, when, I, when I sort of really put the classes out there and people started coming and realising the guest next to them was having the same problem or the guest next to them couldn't taste salt but could taste everything else amplified, yeah. it clarified a lot for people. Um, you know, cancer charity, there's loads of wonderful ones out there and everyone was doing lots of amazing stuff, but no one was ever talking about enjoyment. Yes. So the enjoyment wasn't just about eating it. Very importantly, very cleverly for you, you created these cookery classes which encourage people to get out. But what I was really struck by was the fact that people were coming with their partners. It was a lovely day out in that beautiful valley that where River Cottage is. So they were doing something, they were having fun, you were kind of, you know, host with the most and super Perkins was there. It's all very glam and fun. Well, I think you pick up, you say a really good point there. It is about being glam and being fun. And the reason for that is because my mother, she wouldn't have left the house if I said it was in a community centre. Yeah. And, and that's not just in community centres, you know, but my mother had very little energy. And it was about trying, if I wanted to get her to a class, it would have been that. It would have been getting their partners, their friends, and everything we do in that aspect is free. So, you know, I just really love that we've continued on that tradition in every cookery class we do. We do it in beautiful places. Tell us about that second food moment. Um, so one of the first dishes that you ever saw me do and I ever did was, was a carbonara with mint and peas. Um, and a, f- a few of my friends in the food industry these days say, well, you can't actually call it a carbonara because it's not. <laughs> but I argue it's better. Um, and this dish is amazing because it is a, um, 
it's like so many types of synergistic umami. Now, I talk about synergistic umami a lot in the book, but all it really means is when two types of umami come together, they form super umami. Kapow flavor. So, yeah, so you've got in a carbonara in ours, you've got the eggs with parmesan. You've got the peas in there. You've got the um, pancetta, the smoked lardons. All of those contain umami. Um, and when you put them together, they create super umami. So... It was a dish I wrote before I even met Barry Smith. It was one of the ones I took to him and said, this is what I think will work. Wow. So that's really in- intuitive, isn't it? Yeah. And that's what he said to me. That was exact words. He said, you've been really intuitive, but let me tell you why it works. Right. So why did you think it worked? I just felt like it, it would. I just felt like um, I'd eaten this dish a lot. It was actually my, my former boyfriend's um, dish originally, and I refined it and refined it and refined it. And I just thought about all of those crappy Italians I'd eaten in a carbonara and thinking, if this is what people think the flavours of a carbonara can be, if we amp them up so much to this point, if they've got an altered sense of eating, maybe they can taste it. That was, the, that was the, um, the, the logic in it. Well, except that what happens with chemo, which you explain, or rather Barry explains, is that you lose not just that sense of the heightened tastes, mm. but everything tastes cardboardy. But with, with that double hit of taste and crunch and, and mumami and that feeling, mouthfeel, it, it gives, that's where the pleasure comes from. So you were talking about having a super carbonara as somebody who's not suffering from cancer is not going through chemo. But what you were kind of intuitively doing is knowing what your mother would have enjoyed. Yeah, and I think that's probably my experience as her carer for those two years. That's what I picked up, even though I didn't know I was at the right. time. And then things like the, adding the mint to the carbonara, it was just about trying to lift and brighten the flavours. And then when I found out it's a trigeminal stimulant... So you know, tell us about that. So you have a thing called the trigeminal nerve. It, it sort of branches out the side of your face. It connects your eyes, your nose and your mouth. And I always explain it as it's what burns when you have too much mustard on your Sunday lunch mm. or horseradish mm. or wasabi. Mm. And that stimulation, it's not actually, it's your nerve thinking it's being attacked and reacting to it. It's not actually harmful or really it's painful. Nice. Yeah, it's a sensation. Um, and we use a lot of trigeminal stimulants in the book. And the whole point is, if you're not going to be able to get all of the flavour, if you can get a sensation, then you're getting something from yeah. the dish. Then a dish is giving back to you. Yeah. And what we're always trying to do is break down those barriers of food. Yeah. We're trying to break down if you're now put off eating because you haven't tasted it. Yes, you might not get all the flavour because everyone's taste buds are different and there's no magic bullet. But if you can get something from it, then you're connected to food again. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Which leads us on to the third food moment, because at those life kitchens, you, you were meeting people with stories. You were changing people's lives. They were coming out, they were cooking with their partners and, and enjoying things like feeding their partners who had started eating really bland food as well to try and kind of keep them company. Tell us about Mike. Mike, Mike Richards. He's a lovely man. He came to our Newcastle class. And for me, um, he, was, he was a sort of good northern man that I know so very well. And he came over to me at the beginning and he said, this is not for me. I'm here because my wife's here. She's, she's fed up with feeding me and she doesn't want to do it anymore. She's desperate for ideas. So I'm here to please her, but I'm not going to get anything out of it. And I thought, love your honesty. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for telling me. Just give it a shot is all I ask. And we did a dish called Pineapple Tackles. Now, I think this is the dish I'll be doing till I die. It's like one of those things that we've just done for so long now and people love it. And all we do is we strip down a pineapple and we slice it really thinly so the whole um, pineapple round becomes a taco shell. 
And we use that pineapple and we stuff it with prawns, pineapple, chilli, coriander, lime zest and lime juice. And just by layering those flavours and putting it in, when you, when you bite into that finished taco, it's an explosion of moisture, flavour, interest, texture, and it takes all of five minutes. And what's clever about this dish is I'm not saying this is what's something you should eat every day. What we call it is a reintroduction to flavour. If you've spent so long battling against the idea of nothing tastes good, I'm not going to eat. But then suddenly within five minutes, we can show you how to build flavour and interest and it's novel and it's fun. Mm. You're going to break down those mental barriers. Mm. So as you keep saying, it's always about mental barriers and food. They play hand in hand. Yeah, and it's pretty too. And, you know, the thing about the trigeminal, I think it's to do with the sight as well, isn't it? Or yeah, is it, it connects to- your eyes and nose and your yeah. mouth. Yeah. Um, but again, as, as a food stylist, um, I always wanted to show people how just plating things up a little bit nicer. Do you not remember the classic moment of that River Cottage class is when I said, I absolutely hate white plates. And then someone gave me a white plate to, to, <laughs> to, uh, to style it up on. And the reason is, I think, a visual interest helps us to connect to the food more. I don't want to sound like one of those chefs that this is how we connect to the food, (laughs) but it is true. Give yourself a little bit of another one second extra on plating it up and it just transforms it. Yeah. And looking around that room at that time... um all you could see were smiles. You know, people really concentrating and learning knife skills and wanting to chop their onions up properly, but smiling. Mm. And and terribly importantly, the partners were enjoying it too. Um, your fourth food moment is the miso. Yes. And that's a really interesting... So you're taking an ingredient you wouldn't normally use with white chocolate. Yeah, so there's a dish from the Ivy in London that I've never eaten because I've never eaten at the Ivy, but I've heard of it. And it was this, they did a sort of a white chocolate with yogurt and frozen berries. And I thought, what's really good about that dish is it has a classic element of hot and cold. And I thought temperature plays such a big part in Life Kitchen. You know, again, the mouthfeel, how people interpret the flavours. You know, hot flavours can be different to cold flavours. And I just thought, I want to create a dessert. And we started doing research and all of the research came back to us that people didn't want too much sweet. And it was more about the flavour. It wasn't about sugar or anything else. It was about they couldn't really enjoy the sweetness. But again, they didn't want bitter. Mm. Um, so we, we wrote a load of recipes and tested some stuff out. And I finally came up with this one called miso hot white chocolate sauce with frozen berries. And I thought, well, it's four ingredients. But the miso is high in umami. And I was like, if we can get like those umami stimulants into every dish, then let's do it. So we, we went on a thing called the Refine the Recipe Tour. And we went around the Maggie's Cancer Centres and through loads of free supper clubs. And I sat down with some guests and said, this is a dessert recipe. I really hope you like it. I find it salty and sweet, um, hot and cold, sharp. And it's got loads of amazing sides to it. And the first bite that everyone took, they were, they were, they were sort of really anxious because miso, you only hear it in miso soup. And they're like, well, that's savoury. And I'm like, here it is in a chocolate sauce. And people try it for the first time and you can just see that joy that actually, like the reason that we love sweets and desserts and pudding so much in life is because it's joy. It's the essence of joy, really. Mm. And it was that moment I could see these, these faces light up and they wouldn't let me leave until I gave them that recipe. Now, the book's going to be out by this point, so I might tell you that I gave them it and my publishers are going to hate me for that. But like, those, the, you know, those people wanted yeah. a recipe. They wanted to connect so deeply to a recipe yeah. after not being able to taste and enjoy food for so yeah. long. You know, 
if you, if something as simple as a four ingredient recipe can give people that joy then what else can food do well and that is the point i mean food is about pleasure it's about joy and you've given so many people i mean how many people do you think have been through your life kitchens now i think between our classes and the demos we've done over a thousand it's extraordinary in just two years i know i know and you know it's i hear people say it's extraordinary people say it to me all the time and they tweet me it and and I just look back on it and it's just, I'm just getting by day by day myself. I'm, Life Kitchen's a process for me personally. I'm sort of still healing from my mother, although I'll never really be healed. Um, I, you know, I'm also dealing with a lot of other people who've been to our classes, like some people come in and have died. Yeah. And that's that's emotional. So yeah. it's hard to take the, oh yes, look how brilliant you're doing, look yeah. at the amazing recipes you've written, when also it's also always tinged with a level of sadness. Yeah. Um, but I guess I can be I can be proud of of what we've done, and I'm and I'm really looking forward to the future because again, this is the beginning. Yes. What does the future look like for you? You've got all your celebrity friends now. What are they helping to put, get you connected to the right people? And in many ways, yes. And that sounds quite um, a shallow thing to say, but you know, these people are just normal people who've achieved brilliant things in their life, and they and everyone's really out there helping. But, but only because of what you're doing. You know, the people who you're connecting with are really see this as a very important thing because it is yeah you know and it's hard to get some people to realize that at first they think a cookery class is just you know just that a cookery class a a luxury but eating is no luxury Mm. you know eating is interconnected to our to our mental health our happiness our daily lives and you know people like Nigella Lawson who've been an incredible supporters of mine like she's been picks me up when I felt really sad through this Mm. process you know in what way does she give you a call like I tweeted once saying I felt really sad and and she invited me around to her house for pasta which is a moment in anyone's life and she's Nigella Lawson (laughs) and and I was sitting at her table what kind of pasta tell it was just a simple tomato one it was was amazing obviously Um, and I drank I drank um, I think some fizz she didn't drink anything and I got really drunk and cried (laughs) Oh, just what you do it of course and she's so lovely isn't she and she would have been terribly sort of comforting and she was because she's been there yeah and she... and i think you know i'm living i'm living an incredible life at the moment i, I do amazing things i get invited to brilliant fun places yeah. at the core of what i do though is the cookery class yeah. and i still try to do one once a week or set up events or do all of these things um but when it you know if all of that went away and everything stopped today i'd be really proud of everything that we've done and i'd be really happy to take away from the fact that I know we have in some ways changed some people's lives. You really have. You're 26. I mean, the whole of your life is ahead of you. I mean, this speaks TV series. Well, we've been talking to people. Um, I think until you witness it, like you you and I have, you don't understand the physical joy that that can be made and the excitement and, and the reawakening of people's imaginations. And even some people's like, um, perception of happiness can change in the class and it i think it does have a tv series written it all does. over it because i think it would give people happiness and joy and really spread the message that cancer isn't always bad there are some happy moments in it um and i kind of wish that that was the takeaway my mother could have had because she didn't have any happy moments in her last two years mm. it was a constant battle to survive and and as her carer you've had first-hand experience of how frustrating that must have been well you found the answers imagine how many carers who'd be reading this book watching the television series and saying okay i now know what to do to change somebody's life even if it's a, a shortened life yeah and and it it you know it doesn't always work for everyone but there are elements you can take into your cooking always um and i think if if i could have just found a few little things that would have just lifted her spirits we would have anyone would have done it 
you know, we, we've done collaborations before with, with organisations like the World Cancer Research Fund, um, big organisations who have loads and loads of like, resources, and, and yet they came to us and I said, will you develop recipes with us? And I just thought, you know, for someone who came up with this idea when they were drunk, self-taught themselves to cook, and, you know, Kimberly and I have worked so hard yeah. to, you know, establish ourselves as sort of the people that people come to without, you know, you know, Barry's a major part of that, but without any sort of, you know, we don't have millions of pounds. We don't have a team of people. Yeah. It's Done just it us. Yourself. It's a fantastic story of enterprise, initiative, energy and passion and, and warmth and kindness. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful project. Well done. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate and review the podcast and share wherever you can. And I'll see you next week.